This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back. Today I speak with Deirdre Wallenick. What first captures many people's attention is the fact that Deirdre is mother to world-renowned climber Alex Honnold. But that just scratches the surface of this woman's story. I wanted to know what it felt like to feel so out of yourself and, and surpassing yourself and so, so joyful. I, I vowed to myself that day that someday before I die, I wanted to know what that felt like. She's a mother to two athletic and activist children, a teacher, a writer, an artist, a conductor, a runner, and a climber, just to name but a few of her many identities. Deirdre's book, The Sharp End of Life, is a wonderful account of a life being lived to its fullest and perhaps accelerating in vigor with age. Deirdre, it's great to have you on A New Angle today. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. Reading your book, The Sharp End of Life, you know, one of the most prominent themes to me came came in terms of the importance of human connection. Yeah. And we're just on the cusp of coming out of a time when sustaining human connection has been especially difficult. Right. How, how have you endured COVID and maintained relationships? What's been your experience of the last year or so? For me, it's been two years. In January of 19, I had massive surgery on my foot and I was laid up for many months. And then I left on a book tour, <laughs> which kept me busy for many months. And then I came back and started living again a little bit. And then and COVID hit. So for me, it's been two years of like no connection, really no sustained, you know, human connection. I, cause I couldn't, I was either working or, or recovering on my couch. Yeah. So I had practiced that first year and getting by without people. <laughs> Sounds weird, but that kind of prepared me for COVID. Sure, and coming into you know action sports a, a little later in life, you know one of the things I think you know I, I've struggled with as an athlete is like listening to my body, and you know when you're younger you, you don't really have to listen to it or it doesn't really tell you much, um, right? <laughs> but but you know at your age, I'm sure the body's sending different signals. Um, what was the process of learning to listen to it? Was it was it immediately obvious, or did you have to learn that skill? It was immediately obvious in certain ways and gets more and more obvious as you age more. I started climbing about 10 years ago. And from the very beginning, I had to talk to myself, talk myself out of lagging, of complaining, of um, not being able to do what they were all doing. Um, I had to talk myself through a lot of steps that they take for granted. You know, just the first time they took me out on a multi-pitch. It was like three pitches. And yeah, how high we, off the ground is that for the listener who doesn't know what three pitches It's means. about 400 feet, okay. uh, about 300 feet. Yeah. It's high enough so that everybody down on the ground looks like ants. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Basically. And uh, I was t- absolutely terrified. I was absolutely floored by how scared I was, but I couldn't let on. So I had to, yeah, there was serious self-talk going on out there all the time when I went out. And it it was very educational. <laughs> I mean, I've never, I've done self-talk before. I've done a lot of different things. I mean, the first time I got up to the podium and con- to conduct my orchestra, I was pretty scared too, but, but nobody would die if I didn't do it right. You know, it's different. 
climbing is very different. Yeah, maybe describe your first experiences with climbing. I mean, what what kind of captured you, and 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 and, and how did you catch the bug, so to speak? I didn't set out to be a climber. I didn't catch the bug. I had a son who was a climber, and all that Alex ever wanted to do in his entire life was get higher, climb, 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 high, you know, up higher, uh, from birth onward. That never changed. And um, all he talked about with any passion was climbing and rocks and mountains. You know, he he would leave on on a weekend or a climbing trip or even later, uh, like a North Face expedition or something like that. And then he'd come home a few days later, and I had no idea what was going on out there. He would go, and he would come back several days later, and he would tell me stories about where they were, what they had done. And I didn't understand a word of it, <laughs> which is terrible for mom. You know, I had no idea what he was talking about. And I'm a language person. I've, I've taught five different foreign languages and, you know, all over the world, you know, three different continents. And, and I, languages are what I do. I speak many languages and that was not one of them. <laughs> and so I wanted to find out what his life was like. I wanted to understand what he did when he left the house and came back bruised and beat up. So I had him take me to the climbing gym one day when he was he was injured. He had a, he was nursing a slight arm injury. He couldn't climb. I went there thinking I would maybe climb half a, half a wall because I knew, you know, quote unquote, I knew I was afraid of heights. <laughs> I like so many people. But I went there that day and learned all that stuff, you know, how to tie in and all that stuff. I got on my first wall and I, all of a sudden I was at the top <laughs> and I was thinking, ooh, I should be afraid to look down, but I wasn't. I looked down. I waved at him, and I came down. I did like twelve climbs that day. So I just I re I kind of rediscovered that I loved. I loved climbing when I was a little girl. I really did. I loved to climb trees and up on the garage roof and telephone poles and stuff. But it was taught out of me. I was not supposed to be like that. I was supposed to wear dresses and behave myself. You know, this is back in the fifties. It's <laughs> a long time ago. After World War II, you know, little girls are supposed to be little girls. Right. You have a role to play. And I grew up in the city, you know, New York City. So, yeah, that was frowned upon, shall we say. But but I did love it. <laughs> and I I quelled that all my life. I put that aside. But now it all came flooding back to me, <laughs> you know, that I really did enjoy this stuff. And at what stage did you get outside on the rock for the first time? It was about two months later or three months later. It was spring, early spring. It was quite chilly out there. I'll never forget that. I was freezing the whole day. We went out to uh, Kasumnes River Gorge. Okay. And it was a real eye-opener because <laughs> people really don't know what you do when you're rock climbing how and or how. And I didn't. I was one of them. You know, I, I had never seen it in action. So I, we went out there with a whole bunch of us, like six or seven people. And they're all fooling around on this this slab climb. Uh, I didn't know it was a slab climb then. I, it was just a rock. I didn't know. And I watched one guy do it, watched the, the girl do it, and watched everybody do it. And it looked easy. <laughs> so, you know, they said, Deirdre, you want to try it? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so I tied in. And there were a bunch of blocks at the bottom of the climb. So the blocks were easy. I just, you know, climbed up the blocks with my feet and my hands. And I got to the top of those blocks. It was about 12 feet up. After that point, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. I could not get off the blocks. And there was still another like 20 feet of climbing up above me. I was absolutely deflated. I couldn't get beyond those blocks. 
And so they lowered me and they said, you know, good effort, you know, the first time, don't worry about it. But I was absolutely appalled. How could this be so hard? <laughs> and so as you're kind of, I mean, you got through that eventually and have climbed plenty of rock, plenty of big rock. Yep. Uh, you know, another another theme of, of your writing is is fear. So as you're going through this, you're kind of confronting your own fear. But, you know, as a mother, Alex, you also have to have some, yeah. you know, some fear about what he's doing. Does oh, it get yeah. more scary as you began to understand it more by doing it yourself? Uh, no, the opposite. Um, okay. The opposite. I, uh, that's, like I said, partially why I wanted to try climbing. I wanted to understand his world, see what he did, how he did it, you know, you know what they used and all. And by that point, by the time when I was starting to try climbing myself, he was already in a lot of magazines, videos and stuff. And everything that appeared, you know, we would get one at home get a copy of whatever magazine it was and I'd see all these things and it was terrifying. I'd see him on a climb in some magazine. I was like, my God, how could he do that? As a, as a parent, as a mom, it, it was appallingly terrifying. I didn't want my little baby boy out there doing these things, but that's all he wanted to do. That's all he dreamed about. That's it was his only passion in life. So I needed to understand it better. So I started to climb. And as I learned more about the gear and about how they do things out there, a lot of my imagination of what they do went away. I mean, I, my imagination was far worse than what actually happens out there. And, and now he would say, no, it, it, it looks dangerous, but we had a fill in the blank. He'd name some gear. And then, and now I know that piece of gear. And I say, Oh, okay. Well, that would hold you safe. I'm a writer and a painter and a you know, musician. I have a vivid imagination. And it was way wilder than anything that they were actually doing out there, except maybe the free soloing. But even right. that I've learned to, to deal with over the years. It's been an uphill struggle, though. <laughs> Indeed. You, you, you sort of touched on a, a concept there that, that sounded like fluency to me and, and knowing your sort of love of, of languages and you know so many languages. Talk about that concept of fluency, whether it's knowing a language and being able to relate to people in, in a new land or it's right. being able to relate to people in a new tribe through jargon or a new activity. Or yeah, you know, yeah. how, do, how do you sort of view the concept of fluency and how has it opened up Oh, it's a, it's a very important concept. Yeah, very important concept. That's uh, climbing has its own jargon for sure. It's uh, its own vocabulary, its own language, its own verbs. It's uh, you know everything. And they would talk about it, and I didn't understand. It's kind of like when I was a kid, and all the grown-ups around me were, would would be speaking Polish, and I wanted to know what they were talking about. I wanted mm-hmm. to know if they were talking about me or my brother, or you know, I wanted to know. That's how I got started in learning languages. So this is just another language that I wanted to understand. I didn't think I would ever be fluent in it, as you say, but I would get the gist. You know, that was my initial goal, just to get the gist and see what's going on around me and how they're doing it and why they're doing it and what they're doing it with and all that stuff. And I got more and more fluent. We'll be back to my conversation with Deirdre Wallenick after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. 
Hey, this is Ryan Tutel and Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A A New New Angle. Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with author and climber Deirdre Wallenick about the challenges of becoming an athlete later in life. Your book is uplifting in so many ways. In other ways, they're, they're, it's hard to read in terms of you know just recounting your difficult marriage. And I'd just love to ask you about you know, your view of relationships. You endured what uh, you know appeared to be, by your account, a, a pretty unhealthy relationship for a long yeah. time. Why did you endure for so long? And how did you endure? And then what, what was kind of the tipping point? I know you tell some of that story in the book. I was raised the old country way. Children were to be seen and not heard. As long as you caused no problems for your parents, you were good. You caused any problems for your parents, you were bad. That was very simple. <laughs> and my mother was handicapped, so I had to be good and I had to help her all the time. I was her, her arms and legs often, you know, in the house. She couldn't run up and down the stairs. She couldn't do stairs at all. So I, I had already learned how to put myself aside and just function. I had learned that very, very well. And at the beginning, you know, we were happily married at the, the first year, second year, and, and I, I didn't realize what was going on. But but as it kind of dawned on me little by little, I just kind of, I checked back into that other mode of, you know, just functioning and not worrying about my own self, if you will. Yeah. And you can do that if for many years, but it does take a toll. And uh, I, I reached that toll when Alex was a teenager. Divorce was not really an option, not in my family, not in my social milieu, if you will. And and little by little, it started to become one. But even that, I I would have had to share the kids with my ex-husband if we divorced. And I could see that he was too dangerous to leave them with. I don't mean danger, just thoughtless. You know, he he didn't care what they were doing, what they were up to, where they were. He would lose a kid and not think twice about it. So. I, I couldn't do that. I, that was not an option for me. So I just hunkered down and chose to stay and until they were old enough so that it wouldn't matter to them what we did. Yeah, there's a line in your book where you talk about, you know, some some time in that process you found running. And, you know, you say sort of during some late night runs, you felt like you could be me again or I could be myself again. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was after he, that was after her. he was gone already. Okay, and, and what did that mean when you sort of said, "I can start to feel myself again"? What did that What did that mean for you? Well, like I said, I had to put my myself, my selfhood aside yeah. to live like that, and uh, and I was already practiced at doing that, so I I did it for years, decades. Um, but once he, we got divorced, and the month that the divorce came through, he died. <laughs> It was very unfortunate timing, and and right before that, my father had died, my father-in-law had died, Alex had almost died. It, it was a horrendous time. Like I went through like five or six, seven years of nonstop battering by fate. What were the steps of sort of starting to unwind those obligations and, and lift that weight off of yourself? Um, well, it took a long yeah. time, it took years, but the. The running, the, my daughter is a right. runner. She's a, not a professional runner, but she's, she lives to go mm-hmm. running. And uh, she's a long-distance runner. She's a long-distance biker. For her, that's the, the source of passion in life, like 
climbing is for Alex. And I would w- watch her over there. And I s- took her to her first marathon. This is like right after Charlie had died, I believe. And uh, I watched these people coming in. Well, as I waited for her, I watched you know all the other runners coming in. They were absolutely elated, astounded. They they had all just done something that they all believed that might not be able to right. do, you know? And they had all surpassed themselves in some way. And you could see it on their faces. Even the people who were clearly exhausted and bleeding, some of them, and, and just worked, <laughs> really worked. They were so, so happy. And at that day, I realized that I didn't know what that felt like. And I wanted mm. to. I wanted to know what it felt like to feel so out of yourself and, and surpassing yourself and so so joyful about all those things. I, I, I vowed to myself that day that someday before I die, I wanted to know what that felt like. I was teaching every day. You know, I'd, go home, I'd come home after eight or nine hours. I'd change my clothes, go down to the office of my house and do all of the estate work for Charlie's mm-hmm. estate, for my father's estate, for this and that, write all, all the, the obligations, make, all the forms, yeah. And then before I, I when when I get to the point where I couldn't see anymore, I would put the leash on the dog. I had a big, big dog, a Malamute, and I would take the dog for a walk. Well, when a Malamute walks on those long, powerful four legs, they go really yeah. fast. And it's kind of like hiking with Alex. <laughs> they go really fast. And so I tried to keep up, and I get and I started jogging with the dog a little bit, and, and that's how it started. And I began to realize that I felt much better afterwards i felt different afterwards and i just kept doing it more and more yeah and something awoke inside you it feels like some mind body connection exactly yeah it was all that physicality that i had repressed yeah. you know as a little kid when they tell you i shouldn't be climbing the trees with the little boys and yeah that's who i am though and i had repressed that all those decades and so it all sort of came flooding back yeah, I'm intrigued about, you know, you mentioned your, your childhood, you know, and, you, and, and your mother had polio, I believe, and you, you had a very yeah. specific role to play and a very set expectations and a very kind of narrow band of what was acceptable right. and not. Yeah. But, you know, as a parent yourself, it sounds like you've not approached parenthood in that way at all. Like, how, how, is, no, no. Yeah, how did you build a philosophy about parenthood and, and how has that changed and, and evolved over the years? Well, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I, I learned how to parent by watching my parents and okay. telling myself, I will never do that. I will never do this. I will never be like that. You know, I mean, our, our, our response, our primary responsibility as parents, and this is what my parents both abdicated in their life as parents. Our primary responsibility as parents is to make ourselves obsolete, right. to give ourselves, our, our kids the skills and the knowledge to do without us. Yep. And, and it just seems so obvious. I mean, parents aren't going to be around forever. What's our job? To make them able to stand on their own, to fly on their own. It sounds like you're pretty resolute, or you were pretty resolute in, in, in your philosophy about this. You know, what advice would you have to parents that are kind of, you know, confronting some of those that peer pressure from their friend group about, you know, abiding by some of these norms, and they, you know, maybe they 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 need the courage to to do it the way they feel they want to, and 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 have the social pressure coming down on yeah, them. What would yeah, you say would to those just, folks? Exactly. I would just ask them, why would you value 
the opinion of your peer more than your own. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Peer press, the whole, that very term, peer pressure, is so ridiculous. It's so meaningless. Peer pressure means you value their opinion more than your own. And if you really have thought through your own opinions and, and journaled about it, I mean, journaling is such a good tool for that. If you, if you have written about it and journaled about it and talked about it with yourself, even if you have nobody else to talk to it, as in my case, why would you value theirs over yours? I, I just never really understood that. I still don't. I probably never will. <laughs> I don't know. You use the term resolute, but it has to come from a, a true source. You know, yeah. I had done all the homework. I, I had thought it through for years. I had written about it for years. I had written essays and stories. And, you know, I, I knew my kids. You also have to learn, to, as a parent, you have to learn to read your own kids. I mean, kids say all kinds of stupid, weird things that they don't mean and they don't understand. And you know, you have to, you have to learn to read your own kids. And reading Alex was very simple. <laughs> he just wanted to climb. Period. End of story. And um, if he couldn't do that, well, okay, he would go to school. And he, he was a great student. He, you know, A plus student. Both of my students, both my kids were A plus students. He he was just a charming little kid, but all he ever wanted to do was something that other parents disapproved of. You know, they would take their own kids out. And we lived on a court, a round court, and a lot of little houses, no traffic, you know. So they would take their own kids out on the court and throw balls to them so they could bat the ball for hours on end. But climbing, no, that was not acceptable. And so, yeah, it was it was a hard line to, to walk, but... I had to walk it for my son. I mean, that's all he loved. Yeah. So let's fast forward a number of years. You know, you, you recount in, in your book and other writings, some of your experiences climbing with Alex and, you know, riding bikes or running with Stacia. How has, you know, being, being able to share these activities shaped your relationship with your, with your children, particularly as they're entering adulthood? It really solidified things. It really yeah. did. Uh, I had no real relationship, if you want to call it that, with Alex. I mean, yeah, we were mom and son, of course, you know, we'd laugh and go places and do stuff, but I had no, we had no understanding of each other. And that's basically what a relationship is. You know, we had no deep relationship until I started to climb and could understand him, where he's coming from, what, what he, what drives him. And I hope he's getting a little bit of that from me too. <laughs> yeah. It's gotta be something to, um, to share a rope with your son and be in a position where your you know your life is in in your son's hand or your child's hand that has to be a pretty yeah. um, pretty intense yeah, experience. You know, inevitably, in life, it, if we live long enough, if we're lucky enough, we get to as parents we get to the point where we have to trust our kids, our kids' judgments, whether it's about houses or money or or care, you know, long term care or whatever. But to have to put your life in their hands and trust them to keep you safe. That's a different story altogether. That's a different animal. You know, one of these the recent pieces you, you, you talk about finding calm, you know, whether it's, you know, on the wall or just you know, dealing with politics or coping with COVID. I mean, we're at a time of just life just feels like we're this in this intense moment societally. Yeah. How do you, yeah. yeah. What are your kind of guiding lights for, for helping people find calm in the storm? 
out in the physical world, you know, up out in the mountains and the crags and the walls and stuff. I taught myself, if you will, I, I, I talked myself into absorbing calm from the people around me. And that was essential um, for me to progress as a climber because I was not very calm. Sure. <laughs> I was scared to death out there. And I knew that I needn't be. I, you know, I, for the first day, that first, very first day that they took me outdoors and Kasumnes River Gorge, it's a, it's a river gorge. I mean, you're about, about 40 or 50 feet up from the river. We stopped at the top uh, where the bolts are, where the anchor bolts are. And all the guys started pulling out all their gear getting and, and walking right up to the edge <laughs> of this precipice. To me, it was El Cap. To me, it was Everest. And they're walking out right out to the edge, just walking around in their street shoes. I mean, their approach shoes and, and setting up these anchors. And I was, it was all I could do to not scream at them. <laughs> <laughs> you have to teach yourself to absorb, to, to watch them so that you can understand how safe they really are. <laughs> Even though it looks to you like they're not, they know that they are. It's kind of like Alex and his free soloing. For the rest of the world, it looks horribly dangerous. But he knows that he can do it, and he knows that he's safe. And thats it's hard to put your mind in another mind's track like that. But you have to really try to do that. And nowadays, that's... It's a good skill to have. <laughs> nowadays. It is, yeah. Nowadays or, or any time. I mean, really, in life, life is life is scary. Life is weird. Life is a lot of edges, you know, for for you to fall off of or to not fall off. Yeah, that, I mean, that tie, kind of ties together so many themes of this conversation. I mean, sort of trying yeah. to trying to draw calm from those around you, that community, right. that tribe effect, but also. You know, it harkens to our, our, our conversation of fluency, right? You look to the experts. So, Deirdre, as we close here, tell us, you know, what you're cooking up next. Do you have a, a new book you're working on? Do you have any big kind of climbing or adventure projects you're thinking of? What uh, What is exciting you as we kind of come out of COVID this summer? All kinds of things. I'm still retraining my foot that was, you know, taken apart and put back together, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I'm re- still retraining that. I'm still working on finding out what I can't do and finding other ways to do it. You know, I'm 69 now, and this September I will celebrate my 70th birthday wow. by going up El Cap again. Oh wow! Okay, good for you. Yep. yep. We're not. I'm not climbing it. I'm not climbing the face this time. Uh-huh. This is just just a birthday celebration. I'm going up the way they come down. I'm going up the descent ledges and the descent ropes. Wonderful. Well, good luck. I hope the body and mind cooperate. Sounds like the mind thank won't you. be a problem. The body, hopefully, right. fingers crossed. Right. Um, thank you. Uh, you know, as we close here, how can um, you know people want to learn more about you, your writing, your work, your book? Where would you point them online to, to well, find out easiest, more about you? Well, the easiest thing is just go, you know, Amazon.com or wherever you get books and check out The Sharp End of Life. Or go to a lot of magazines like climbing magazines, uh, parenting magazines, and just type in my name. It's hard to spell. <laughs> it's a toughie, but... Uh, I think folks can endure the spelling challenge, and it is it is <laughs> well so. worth it. The book, your other writings, uh, everything, Deirdre, I've enjoyed getting to know. So thank you. thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Sure, my pleasure.
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.